0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the season of giving. Now through the end of the year is a critical time for the causes and charities we love most.
1: You know, philanthropy is a $410 billion ecosystem.
0: Who gives and why and what charities are most attractive
2: as thousands compete for your dollar. Most people give because it
3: makes them feel better. It's empowering. And then you've got the impact of this new tax law, which no one really knows Mm -hmm. how it's going to flesh out. We dig into the economy of giving. He
0: won an Emmy telling the story of one of Philadelphia's 19th century unsung heroes.
4: Had he lived the length of, say, a Frederick Douglass, might well have emerged as someone on the same level. A
0: local documentary filmmaker and his work telling the city's stories. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donorsone.org. Flashpoint where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the season of giving. Nearly one-third of all charitable giving happens in the month of December and 12% of the giving takes place in the last three days of the year. In the month of November, right now is when many charitable efforts pump up their ass. With more than a quarter of all nonprofits making up to half their budget during this season, the Philadelphia region is home to thousands of charities, all competing for your dollars. But with new tax regulations... Does the economy support giving? And what can donors do to support the causes they love most? With me in the studio to discuss this Flashpoint is Charmaine Matlock-Turner. She's the president and CEO of the Urban Affairs Coalition. We also have Jeff Hornstein, executive director of the Economy League of Greater Philadelphia. And finally, we have Dr. Keith Leapheart, founder of Philanthropos. The Giving Company. So we are officially in the season of giving. So Keith, I want to start with you. We know this is a time when people tend to give gifts to those they love, but how important is this time for charities?
1: So, I mean, the season of giving is, to me, the most important time of the year. It is critical for nonprofits, and it's an opportunity for us to kind of reflect and say, what can we do? All of us have been blessed throughout the year. And in many ways, I think one of the main challenges and problems in the market with philanthropy is that Philanthropy is looked at as something for the rich and wealthy, yeah. and a lot of times, you know, nonprofit just because the way the system is set up, they're going after large foundations, they're going after corporations, but in reality, you know, the majority of the dollars come from individual givers. You know, philanthropy is a four hundred and ten billion dollar ecosystem. Only fifteen percent actually comes from foundations. So you add up. You know, the Gates Foundation, the Bezos Foundation, Buffett, you name every other foundation, that's only 15% of the giving ecosystem. Then you look at corporations. We have some great corporations here locally that are very philanthropic, Wells Fargo, Comcast. They only make up 6% of the ecosystem. 70% is actually from individuals. And so part of what we're doing with Philanthropos is really redefining what it means to be a philanthropist uh, and to participate in philanthropy. And when we talk about philanthropy, we talk about gifts of time, talent, as well as treasure and your social ties. And we all have our unique gifts. We want people to get involved early and often.
0: We'll get back to your organization and how it works. And so, Charmaine, I want to come over to you. The Urban Affairs Coalition supports dozens and dozens of nonprofits in their charitable efforts. What does this season mean for a lot of the smaller cuz you have a lot of tiny nonprofits who you work with. So you, h- you probably teach people on how to use this season. Right.
2: Well, I think the real idea is that in the end, I think people give because it really feels good. I honestly believe that, yeah. you know, it's it's empowering to know that you have something of either time, talent, or treasure that you can give to someone else and that it can have an impact on either that individual, that group, uh, or that community. So I never lose the fact that I think at the heart of giving is about how we feel. And then people want to be able to, I would say feel even better by knowing that it's a good organization that people are following through on what they're supposed to do and that they really are, are going to have a real impact. But I, I agree with Keith. If you look at all the data, mm-hmm. um, the majority of people who give are individuals and even people who don't have a lot Give. Yes. And so whether it's a dollar or whether it's what Michael Bloomberg just did, which is one point. $2 $2 billion Big money. to John Hopkins Big money. Yeah. University for scholarships for people. I think all of those kind of stories are critically important to remind all of us that we have something to give yes. no matter what the generous. size of our, of our gift
1: is.
0: The, the, the American culture is very generous.
1: Michael Bloomberg's first gift to Johns Hopkins was $5. People don't realize that. The first gift yeah. he gave there was $5 as a senior, right? And he's going on to become the biggest single giver yeah. to any institution, but it started with one $5 gift as yeah. a senior.
3: When I, yeah. when I lived in Baltimore in the 90s, Bloomberg gave $100 million. In
0: and so let's talk about the economy a little bit, Jeff. I mean, are we in an economy that supports giving?
3: It's an interesting question. So um, supposedly we're in a booming economy. Yeah. have a lot of debate. A lot about of job that. numbers. There's, there's yeah. certainly um, a fair number of people who have been left out of that growth, uh, certainly in this city. But despite the booming economy, giving is about 2 percent of GP- GDP. It never really changes very much. Mm-hmm. So people – p- how people give shifts. Obviously, there's been a huge shift with the rise of the internet and, yeah. and ability of people to find charities on their own and get the information they need, which is you know, why the United Way is going through some re- restructuring I think because the, these mechanisms that have existed for generations to aggregate people's uh, charitable giving and to make it easier and vet things, I think especially younger people – People younger than me um, are using these tools um, in, in new ways to find and, and to very, very specifically target their giving in ways that hasn't been yeah. possible in the past. So there's a really interesting shift as we digit as the economy becomes incre- increasingly digitalized. But yeah, Americans are generous. There's no no question about about that. Um, but but that two percent number has really been around for for a while. And then you've got the impact of this new tax law, which no one really knows how it's going to flesh out. This is the first year that it's enforced. They've changed the standard deduction by virtually doubling it for for married couples. Um, Now you've got the rise of donor-advised funds, which are essentially kind of giving bank accounts for for people with, with means. Uh, we'll see how we the, have
2: impact investing, impact investing, as a new tax strategy. Yeah. yeah.
3: So there's all this. It, it's hard to, you know, people always make predictions about how tax law changes are going to affect affect yeah. people's mm-hmm. behavior, and they're often wrong. So yeah. Let's, so we, let's we see how that plays same. out. Yeah. Let's see how that plays out. I read something on the Philadelphia Foundation's website last night about how now they're encouraging people to give a large amount every other year. Um, because if with the way the deduction has increased the standard deduction, there's less value for giving, say, $10,000 a year. But if you gave $20,000 every other year and put it into a donor-advised fund, you can actually reap the tax benefits. You know, reasonably complicated yeah. stuff. But the, that's, that's what the incentive structure is telling us in this yeah. new tax law. And, we'll and, see if that's how people right, actually behave. Right, yeah,
2: exactly. And just, Jerry, just to add one other thing, yeah. the, the IRA deduction mm-hmm. for those who are 70 and a half is another way for people to be able to give directly to charities. We've been seeing a little bit of that, and that is because of the fact that people have to take a certain deduction from their IRA when they reach that age. Again, there's an opportunity for people to give. So when we look at these kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. we are looking at both the challenge as well as what the opportunity might be. And I know that the ease of giving, Keith,
0: I mean, the ease of giving is very important. I mean, I know I, I host a lot of... Nonprofit galas and events, and now if you can't text in some money, yeah.
1: it's it's yeah. it's a problem. Right. So as Jeff talked about, the fact is that technology and philanthropy are now uniting, right? And that's where the market is shifting. Um, millennials are the most active on mm-hmm. things like Giving Tuesday, which is mm-hmm. an online giving event. They are the most likely to give based on social media, social media influence. So they're often influenced by their friends and family and what they're saying about an organization. On social media, but I wanted to get back to Charmaine's point because I think she hit it on the head. I felt like you know I was in church and was going to say amen when she was saying <laughs> that people give because they feel you know, good. They feel yeah. good. It's about I literally I've always said I had two things I like doing: making money and helping people. Mm-hmm. And both of them, in their own way, I feel good about. Right? I mean, like when I help people, it's always been my life's dream as a physician to find ways to help people. Philanthropy, you know, chairing the board of the Fest Foundation was the exposure into, as Charmaine noted. Professional philanthropy, yeah. But my my goal has always been to help people, and it's been empowering to me as an individual. Right? It really, when you're able to help someone, no matter how bad your life is, you're able to say and say, "Man, it's it's not as bad as I thought." Because, yeah. You know, and that's what it's about. Whether it's 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 five dollars or ten dollars or whatever, it is making a difference in helping, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it is self empowering.
0: And I want to yeah. talk about this fact that you know Philadelphia had more than eight thousand nonprofits incorporated in the city as of 2017 and more than 15,000 in this region. And every time I turn around, I'm doing a story about individuals who have launched their own effort. They see a problem. They raise
2: money. I mean, how does all of this, this is competition, right? Right. But I, on the one hand, it could be competition. We look at it at the Urban Affairs Coalition as social entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. I would argue that we don't say that there are too many uh, people who are starting small businesses, mm-hmm. I make the same argument. I don't think there are too many people who are wanting to do good and to have some kind of uh, organization that's a part of change. What we do with the coalition, because we're a home for nonprofits, is we like to let the community know there are ways that you can do it that help save you time, money, and help you grow. So we created a back office so that we could do all of the work around human resources and and all those wonderful things around insurance and how to manage contracts. Make people legit. Exactly. <laughs> to do all of those yeah. kinds of things so that people can do what they really want to do when they usually start a charity. And that's to get out and make change happen in community. So there are ways for us to have more people join uh, this wonderful movement. And a very smart way. Just call us at the coalition; we can help you. Well, if yeah,
0: the percentage stays at two percent, does it grow? I mean, because if there's more organizations, well, as GDP more people, as GDP yeah, grows. Grow yeah, then the giving the, yeah, in real grows.
2: dollars. If you look yeah. at the numbers, I think uh, the on, on are real growing, dollars. Yeah. The amount of money that's being given is increasing Absolutely. every year. I think GDP, there were only yes. three years that it didn't, and yeah. that was the recession in what 08 and 09, and then the sort of recession in and uh, 1987. So the actual amount of dollars is absolutely increasing. It's growing,
1: it's consistent, um, and it's something, you know, no matter what is happening, people still typically give, and that's the good thing, right? Yeah. The fact that you talk about uh, that there are lots of organizations out here, nonprofits trying to do the work, that is actually really, really important Mm -hmm. because just like in, you know, in a small business context or in a business context, you know, the organizations who are doing it well will continue to grow, and those who who are not meeting their mark will close close yeah, down exactly. just like any other business. I
3: just wanted to piggyback also on something that both
1: uh, Keith and uh, Charmaine said.
3: Entrepreneurship around solving problems, whether yeah. it's a for-profit venture or non-profit venture, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter. I and mean, one of the things we're trying to, to do with the Economy League, as you know, I, I talk about the Economy League now, we're 109 years old. We're going to be 110 next year. Um, I took over nine months ago, and we're I'm treating this like a 109-year-old startup. Yeah. And um, one of the things we're standing up is a civic innovation lab. So December 3rd, we're going to be launching uh, uh, what we're calling the Full City Challenge in partnership with Billy Penn because yeah. we love the millennials and mm-hmm. they have great access to them. And they wanted some gravitas, so it was a great uh, marriage between the two, two organizations. And we're going to be giving people the opportunity to float ideas around food and social impact. It's yeah. going to be pretty broadly construed. But we think there's a lot of great ideas out there that, that um, folks need some technical expertise um, and a little bit of money to help realize. So we're going to be helping them – idea ideas. We've got a panel of celebrity judges who are going to yeah. judge the ideas, and we're going to let a thousand flowers bloom here and really see. And eventually, they'll end up getting hooked up with Charmaine's organization once yeah. they get to the point where they they've got an idea that's ready to move so you're forward. We're taking
0: them from seeds, and and you get the ta- saplings. Exactly, over. right? We're right. taking right. them. We exactly. get the seeds. Yeah. She gets the
3: saplings, and
2: then we yeah. grow, grow, grow. But, but, but in the end, we get to have everybody. I believe, honestly, just like everybody can give something, everybody can be a part of solving problems yeah. in our community. And the more that people are engaged in that work, whether it's from starting their own organization or being a part of that, everybody's like pulling in the right direction. We don't go, oh, that problem can never be solved. Oh, this problem is intractable. No. Yeah. All of them All of this, can yeah. can change if we're all engaged in driving that change, and part
0: sure. of what nonprofits do, though, and, and organizations do is try to support people and solve problems in the community. So how can we I know that wages have been stifled for years. How do I mean? Because if more people make more money, do mm-hmm. they do they tend to give more?
1: For sure. Right. I, I would say um, organization. I'm going to go specifically Charmaine's organization, UAC, yeah. right, which is an umbrella organization that encompasses the work of a lot of nonprofits. Mm-hmm. They do. The the important work of making sure when me as a social entrepreneur has an idea, I might not have any sense of how to run the business part of, you know, standing up this nonprofit and building that part. And that's where being able to go to an organization like Charmaine is important. But just as important organizations like UAC and particularly in Charmaine and her leadership role are looking at the other important work around, you know, income inequality, wages in the city, Mm wage stagnation and You know, independently of the work of these other organizations that they're supporting, they're pushing those issues. So I think we have to, uh, when you're making bets and investments on where you should put money to, it's those type of organizations that serve a dual purpose, right? They're helping to stand up the entire nonprofit ecosystem, but also addressing some of the most critical issues here is that we need to focus on ways to get people to the table economically, whether that's Mm -hmm. employment or job training. And grow that GDP so that you grow that 2%
0: number. Well, I want to give each of you 15 seconds to plug your organizations and then we're going to do our final thoughts. So Keith, go and then we'll end with Charmaine and then we'll do our final thought.
1: So as you mentioned earlier in the program, I just launched a new company called Philanthropos, which is the giving company. And for me, it, it marries my personal passion of helping people and empowering people through philanthropy. So we're building out a philanthropy technology company that at a high level is building LinkedIn for philanthropy Mm. uh, will allow people to see the impact of their time, talent, and treasure, but also the impact of their network, right? So it's not just about, uh, you know, what I've done over my life in philanthropy. And, uh, you know, through this platform, you get to see your kind of giving portfolio. You'll be able to see the impact of your network. And whether it's through school affiliation, local affiliation, or any other affiliation, you see the aggregate. And please
0: give the website.
1: Uh, so the website right is www.philanthropos.com.
3: All right, Jeff. So as I said, the Economy League's 109-year-old civic leadership and think and do tank, as we're calling it now. We've got this anchor initiative, which I mentioned. Um, another core thing that we're working on is we've realized that our fine friends in city government. Very well-meaning people are operating in largely an information-deprived environment. So we are working with them to create a local version of the Congressional Budget Office that will um, do a lot of analysis and getting back to Economy League Fundamentals Mm -hmm. where the organization was founded in 1909. The other thing I'll say is Charmaine just came with us uh, out to Seattle. Right, We take 150 cross-sector leaders to another city every other year to study how they do what they do. And now we are building this out into a year-long program called GPLEX 365 um, that's going to, we hope, build some civic muscle. That's our real – one of my big initiatives right now, civic muscle that's organized around increasing diversity and inclusion in our local economy, which to me is one of the big weaknesses. Our website, and you can find out all about the stuff we're doing, www.economyleague.org. Wonderful last – and the
2: Urban Affairs Coalition, uh, we have just kicked off our 50th year celebration for the work that we've done. Just an idea that started at 12th and Market Street uh, over 49 years ago where people said, can we do more together than we can separately? And we've proven at the coalition that, that we absolutely can. So we are a convener, a connector, a collaborator. Um. There's probably not a major issue in Philadelphia that yeah. we are not bringing mm-hmm. the voice of the community to the table with real concrete ideas uh, and solutions. But the other thing that we love about the coalition is that philanthropy and sort of giving back is not just for those who can write a billion dollar check yeah. or a million dollar check. It's Mrs. Brown who's on the street who wants to start a book club. For young people on her block, maybe on her porch or in her living room, there's a home for her uh, at Mm -hmm. the Urban Mm -hmm. Affairs Coalition. Mm -hmm. You want to help some young people uh, who maybe through a recreation program, you can start that at the Urban Affairs Coalition. We want everybody to know they can be a part of giving back. So you can reach us at UAC.org. All right. Last question.
0: I want you all to take a few seconds and just give some advice first to our givers then to our nonprofits on how best to capitalize on this season
2: of giving. My first piece of advice for nonprofits is even though this is a season of giving, remember that you've been working to build relationships all year. Reach out to those that you've connected with. Find out how they want to give and either time, talent, or treasure. Meet them where they are and then make sure that their experience is good and that you let them know how their dollars are being spent. Wonderful.
3: Go to the Economy League's website, economyleague.org, and give heavily. Now, it's a, I mean, Everything Charmaine said is absolutely right. You need to meet people where they are. How does someone's interests align with your organization's interests? And that's how you get them engaged and invested in the work you're doing. Advice
0: for givers.
1: Once again, back to uh, Charmaine's point, it is about relationships. So if you're a nonprofit, you know, focusing on building relationships uh, throughout the year, uh, and for givers, seek out new relationships. Think outside the box. Uh, look at different opportunities that uh, people that you don't know expand your horizon because oftentimes one of the problems is that you know because of social isolation and different relationships, people can't get in the room. There, yeah. there are good organizations that are go, uh, doing good work. So take the extra step in trying to seek out organizations or people that you don't know and find out more about them.
0: And just remember, every dollar makes a difference, y'all. Thank you to Charmaine Matlock-Turner. Thank you to Jeff Hornstein. And thank you to Dr. Keith Leapart for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, a filmmaker who tells the story of Philadelphia documentary style.
4: I knew that Philadelphians were prideful about their history.
0: His award-winning piece on a 19th century unsung hero. We'll be right back.
4: It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint.
2: What we have is a crisis.
4: This goes way beyond just the perpetrator.
2: You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black
5: and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting.
4: I think we forget that you came from somewhere else too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app.
0: This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is bad accounting of history. And one man, Sam Katz, is making headlines after he won an Emmy for his recent documentary on one of America's unsung heroes who is finally getting his due. That man is Octavius V. Cato. He was a black civil rights leader who was murdered on Election Day in South Philadelphia in 1871. With us in the studio to discuss the award-winning work, as well as his documentaries on the history of Philadelphia, is businessman, political hopeful filmmaker, and founder of History Making Productions, Sam Katz. Welcome to Flashpoint.
4: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. So, Sam, you are a lot of things. <laughs> you do a lot of different things. Um, but we're going to focus real quick on this uh, documentary of Octavius V. Cato, your most recent, one of your recent works.
4: Well, so Octavius Cato, o- Octavius Valentine Cato The story is lost and was rediscovered really to his credit by a group led by Jim Kenney and Jim Straw and Mm -hmm. uh, others, uh, Carol Lawrence, who wanted to create for Philadelphia what turned out to be the first monument dedicated to the contributions and memory of an African-American. There is a monument to colored soldiers across the street from the Benjamin Franklin Institute. Uh, There are Africans in the sculptures on the city hall. But there had been no monument. And the timing of that, of course, after Charlottesville in September of 2017 was quite unique. Yeah, We had been exploring Philadelphia's history. And in the 1860s, Octavius Caddo, then a fantastic baseball player, a teacher at the Institute for Colored Youth, a proponent of access to streetcars for Mm African-Americans, and a promoter of the right to vote, a young civil rights leader, emerged on the scene in Philadelphia as a most impactful character, but one largely lost in history. Yeah. So <clears throat> we helped to excavate that story, as did the committee working on the monument, and we decided to produce a 14-minute video on the life and contributions of Cato, time to be released at the time of the unveiling of the, of mm-hmm, the monument. Mm-hmm. So he's an interesting human being whose life was cut short very early, and who, had he lived uh, the length of, say, a Frederick Douglass, might well have emerged as someone on the same level as Fred- Frederick Douglass. There were Octavius Caddo's in virtually every city in the North. Uh, but Caddo in Philadelphia was a- an enormously important person.
0: Yeah, and I had a chance to watch the film. Very well done. And it talked about how when he he died, he was murdered on Election Day.
4: He, he was murdered on, on an election day in Philadelphia in which... Uh, African-American men mm-hmm. were voting in a mayoral election, I believe, for the first time post Abraham Lincoln and the founding of a Republican Party that had just emancipated slaves. Yeah. Democrats in Philadelphia, very heavily ethnic, very often Irish Catholic, uh, wanted to tamp down the turnout in in the fourth ward, which is Moya Mensing which is set just south of South Street. Yeah. And Caddo and seven six others were murdered on election day. He was not the only one. Dozens of people were beaten up. Homes were ransacked. The message was to suppress the vote. Yeah. It's a different type of suppression than we that we see today. Today we see institutional suppression. A denial of a right to vote because you don't have the right ID. In North Dakota, Native Americans are having to show home mm-hmm. addresses, and they live on reservations with no home addresses. In Georgia, we're seeing the Secretary of State, a candidate for governor, disqualifying 53,000 registrants. This is a part of American history, the idea that you would fear the performance of one group of people at a polling place and do everything you can to keep them from voting. In the 1870s, the day that Cato was killed, a Republican, William Stokely, was elected mayor over the Democrat. And uh, for the next 80 years, Republicans dominated city government in Philadelphia. Yeah. That was a turning point election for the city.
0: Talk about your filmmaking, because you do a lot of stories about Philadelphia.
4: To a large extent, when I uh, decided to start a career in filmmaking, I never actually thought it would be a career, but uh, 10 years ago, I knew that Philadelphians were prideful about their history. Mm-hmm. I also knew they didn't know anything about it. Yeah, They basically hugged 1776. So we, we became a city that when we have guests, we take them to uh, Independence Hall to see the Liberty Bell, uh, the President's House, the, the exhibition on slavery. But we don't go beyond the founding period of the republic and Philadelphia's obviously quintessential role in that. But it's a 19th century city. I mean, if you look at the neighborhoods, they were basically created – through the allocation of streetcar lines. Why mm-hmm. do we have these neighborhoods? Because the city granted a company a right, the right to develop a streetcar. And that made the neighborhoods accessible to where the jobs were. So we also have a fire station uh, yes. a, a community mm-hmm. that was for a long time, even after Philadelphia consolidated one police force in 1854, it was another 17 years before the firehouses came under municipal control. I don't think most Philadelphians had any understanding of that. I certainly didn't. And uh, the city that we are today, the, the park, city hall, mm. uh, the fact that we have – we had a centennial in 1876, uh, the structure of the neighborhoods, the nature of the railroad system, which was de- de- designed by Pennsylvania and Reading uh, to create lines out to the suburbs, all done in the 19th century. So we are very much captives of the 19th century story of Philadelphia and people just didn't know it. People knew that their neighborhood was, if they lived in Tacony or Mayfair, that the the a distant sawmill had been the reason that the neighborhood was created. If they lived in South Philadelphia, yeah. they knew that some time ago there was a shipyard and that people got jobs at the shipyard. But I think what we've tried to do, and I think we've done it really successfully, is to create stories that entertain people while informing them. And hopefully in the conclusion of our major series, The Great Experiment, Philadelphia, The Great Experiment, which we are finishing the final two episodes now, uh, we will be able to launch a conversation that will help inform the city's future by making people more cognizant of its past. And yeah. I think that'll hopefully be a good contribution.
0: Because there's a lot of, I'm not a native Philadelphian. I'm from Washington, D.C. And to, I've seen several of the episodes of Philadelphia, The Great Experiment, and just knowing that Philadelphia had one of the first organized Fire companies and and the you know in the country these are like points of pride uh, for the city of Philadelphia
4: and and valuable things to know because history um, is, no matter what the history is understanding it is a, cr- a critical component of being a good citizen mm-hmm. and uh, we could definitely use some improvements on that front
0: definitely and you are uh, for years and years and years was a politician ran for mayor well politicians are people that get
4: elected. <laughs> I I am not one of those people. (laughs) Uh, I remember going into a campaign headquarters for Cats for Mayor in 1999 and a high school classmate of mine was surrounded by the press and I overheard him say, I'm the last person he beat in an election in 12th grade. So I I have uh, always wanted to be the mayor and worked very hard in my mind to make possible Mm -hmm. that, but in a city overwhelmingly Democratic running as a Republican may not have been the best strategy.
0: Yeah, and so what What made you want to be mayor of the city? I mean, obviously you love it. I mean, you're, you're writing about it. You're producing films about the city.
4: Well, I love it, but I'm not crazy about how it has rolled out its future. And I thought um, that I had a better idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think Philadelphia lacks competitiveness around ideas. Uh, we're a one-party city. We were a one-party city from 1871 to 1951. And since 1951, we've been a one-party city. And I think whenever you have one company, one party, one dominant force, you crush other ideas. Uh, I suspect that a lot of what I articulated as my vision for the future of the city didn't fit with everybody in the city. In 1999, when Rendell um, left office, I I competed with uh, city council president John Street and lost by about a point and a half. Yeah. I thought that was going to go the other way. In 2003, we were doing well. Uh, 30 days before the election, uh, an electronic listening device was found in the ceiling above Mayor Street's office. Uh, Very shortly thereafter, the Democrats and National Democrats turned that event into the son of Watergate, and I got crushed. So uh, I would not characterize – I do have politician in my resume – but I wouldn't say that I am the case study for how to be a politician.
0: Yeah, but it's crazy because the shame of a city, uh, the, the documentary, um, talked about this very issue. I mean, it seems like you just had a, a couple of bad luck It was just like the, the timing was just awful.
4: Well, shame of the city worked out well for Michael Nutter because he used it extensively in his fundraising. It did not work out well for Sam Katz.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Any any chance you want to go back in?
4: Every day I want to go back in, but I have, I have recovered my mental health.
0: But so you're founder of History Making Productions. You're doing a lot. What's your next big project?
4: Well, we just finished a film called Sisters in Freedom. Mm. And it was premiered in September, but it'll be broadcast uh, on Women's History Month uh, in, in March. It's the story of a generation of women excluded from the American anti-slavery society because they were women who led by Sarah Mapps Douglas and Lucretia Mott and Angelina Grimke, congregated in Philadelphia to promote abolitionism and to do it in the public square where women were not uh, mm. permitted. And not only did they speak out, they wrote pamphlets, they spoke up at, at uh, services and both friends and other Christian services, they were out handling leaflets, they were writing journals, and they, were, they organized the construction of a building because no one would allow the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society to meet in any wow. building that existed in the 1830s. So they had
0: to build their own.
4: They built their own. It was going to be a big civic center, and it was called Pennsylvania Hall. And the day that it opened uh, was the day after Angelina Grimke and Theodore Weld, Angelina Grimke from South Carolina, daughter of a slaveholding family, and Theodore Weld, an abolitionist from Massachusetts— got married in Philadelphia, and the officiators of the marriage were a white and a black minister. The city went nuts. The amalgamation, as it was called, of blacks and whites was something that nativist Philadelphians who had had built the Know Nothing Party in Philadelphia were absolutely freaked out about. And when the hall opened, uh, there were 3,000 people inside the hall and 15,000 outside the hall. And by the end of the day, the hall had burned to the
0: ground. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that story. This is
4: Philadelphia. Get to know us. (laughs) This is
0: Philadelphia. So tell people where they can find your documentaries.
4: Our documentaries are available at no cost to the public at historyofphilly, historyofphilly, one word, .com, www.historyofphilly.com.
0: Well, wonderful. So Sam Katz, founder of History Making Productions. Thank you for the work that you do.
4: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Next up, they make men in need business sharp. They see
5: themselves as different people.
0: How a local group is using fashion and moral support to get men back to work. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. An employer can form their opinion within seconds during a job interview. That's why Men's Fit is suiting up low-income men struggling to find a job. They're also developing their professional skills. It's a service that has generated over $58 million in taxable income between... The thousands of men the organization has helped here to tell us how the nonprofit is getting men business sharp is founder Rhonda Willingham. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Sherry. Good to be on with you. Yes. And so, you know, you've been around... Doing wonderful work, (laughs) not just in Philadelphia, but also in Washington, D.C. For those who have not heard about Men's Fit, tell us about it.
5: So in a nutshell, our mission is that we change lives, families and communities. Mm -hmm. And we do that by providing men with career development services such as workshops, financial literacy, training, fitness. And then, of course, our claim to fame is that we suit guys up for their job interviews. So we get them looking really sharp.
0: Yeah. And th- people always forget about the guys. Right. They do. And
5: you, and you really shouldn't forget about the guy. I think that society as a whole, we just think that sometimes guys have everything together. And they, don't, they don't really really need the kind of services that historically and traditionally have been available to women. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of why I got started.
0: And so describe the ambiance. Because your shop, when you come in there... Um, it's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs>
5: It's fabulous. It is fabulous. On purpose and by design. So actually, our shop is set up like an upscale men's store. I mean, you know, it looks like a a mini Brooks Brothers or a mini, you know, Boyd's. And we do that's on purpose and by design because we want the guys to feel like, one, that they're getting a hand up, not a handout. Um, Two, and once they put that outfit on, whether it's a suit, sport coat, shirt, whatever it is, they really feel empowered. Like they see themselves as different people. And so the image of the store, the shop, boutique, whatever you want to call it, that adds to their confidence, their self-confidence.
0: You know, women, we know that we yeah. put a dress on, Ooh, girl. you feel a di- like a, di- <laughs> right. a new woman, but right. it does a lot, especially when you're trying to transition back to work. And And talk about some of the men you help and how this, this transformation a, helps them.
5: Well, when they come to us, they come from different programs. So some of them may be returning citizens. Um, some of them may come from job training programs, homeless shelters, other organizations, but when they come to us, they don't really know what they're going to get necessarily. But when they walk in that door, they're like, "Wow, this is amazing! Like, this is not this is not what I thought this was going to be." And so. Yeah, we, we spend about 45 minutes per person. We suit them up. But we also, it's almost as if they're shopping. So we'll mm. ask them, do you have a favorite color? Is there a particular color you're looking for today? Do you already have something in this? Because one of the things we want to do is expand the wardrobe. If you do have something, we want to expand It's
0: it. about fashion a little bit, y'all. It it's is a little about, about yeah, fashion. Yeah. Yeah.
5: So, unfortunately, we you know we've been able now since July to be able to now offer each man a week's worth of clothing once he lands the job.
0: Wow. Yeah, so
5: that's really exciting. That's, that's been because of our partnership with Amari Seville. So we're excited about that. And guys now have a choice. They can come back and say, okay, I want my week's worth of clothing. And there's three different packages that they can pick from. So it can be a package that's all suits because the job you're going on requires you to wear one. Typically, it's a business casual package that they choose. But similar, you know, to us, I mean, a guy can take a couple of suits and mix and match some shirts, a couple ties. He's got a week's worth of clothing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we get a lot of nice stuff. You know, women who are cleaning out their husband's closets, or unfortunately if someone dies, you know, they'll donate clothing to us. So every year y'all have a big fundraiser. Right. This is our annual event. Yeah, we're excited about it. It's a lot of fun. It's called Who Wore It Best. So Who Wore It Best um, sort of originated from Councilman Curtis Jones Jr., fourth district. He said, Rhonda, you know what? I really want to support men's fit. Let's do something. I said, okay, what do you want to do? He said, I'm into fashion. You guys are all about fashion. Let's create this fashion show. And so then I said, okay, well, let's make it a competition. And that's kind of how we got, came up with the name Who Wore Best. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, last year, this is our third year doing it. Last year and the year before last, it was just members of city council. This year we've opened it up to state legislators as well as uh, members of the judiciary branch. And the executive branch. So so public servants. So public servants are welcome to participate. Yes. So it's going to be a hoot. So what will they be doing? Strutting. Strutting their stuff. They get to wear one outfit of their own. This year they get to create their own look from their own wardrobe, which should really make it interesting because they'll be judged on creativity, style, and their walk. Wow.
0: So, yeah. So it should be fun. Wonderful. So where can people buy tickets and support or make donations? Or how about provide some of those dope suits they have in their closet that they cannot They've grown out of.
5: They've grown out of. That's mm-hmm. it. They can call us at 215-845-5904 to schedule an appointment to drop off their clothing donations. In terms of tickets for the event, folks can just go to our website, mensfit.org, and mensfit is spelled with a Z, not an S, and um, just click on the events page and it'll take you right right to the where you purchase the ticket.
0: And so why are you so passionate about this?
5: You know, well, a couple reasons. One is that I just kind of feel like If we get our men together, many of the organizations that exist for women would not need to exist. They exist because the man is missing from the household. And so now mom's got to do more than what she should be doing, what she was created to do. So I just kind of feel like if we get our guys together, they they can be back in the household. They can be contributing to their children's life and really being positive role models in the community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say congratulations to you. you. And check out Men's Fit. That's M-E-N-Z Fit, F-I-T dot org. And sign up. And the event is when? Tuesday. On Giving Tuesday. Oh, it's on Giving Tuesday. 530 to 8. City Hall. Wonderful. That is November 27th. Check it out. And thank you so much, Rhonda Willingham. Thank For you, all Sherry. you do for our men, lifting them up and making them look real good. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoy this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry CherryGreg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content. Using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms, simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Sir Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving.